You're listening to This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. This episode is sponsored by the Nazarene Student Center at the University of Oklahoma. Committed to sharing Christ's love with the students at OU, the OUNSC is meeting them wherever they are. For more information or to have them come speak to your group, visit OUNSC.org or search for them on social media at the OUNSC. Today on the podcast, we have Reverend Michael Palmer as interviewed by our field reporter, Reverend Jason Smith. Michael is the pastor of Living Vine Church in Napa, California. Thanks for tuning in. My guest, Michael Palmer, who is a pastor of Living Vine Church in Napa, California. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's the opening question that Britt always asks. How did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene? Uh, that's a, that's a, a question I think I didn't have any choice in the matter, really. So if I trace my family back, so there's, there's me and my dad and my my grandfather, uh, my dad's dad, all three of us are pastors. And then in the Nazarene church, and if you go even farther back from that, my grandfather was involved in the Nazarene church. So I'm like four generations deep at this point. And uh, maybe uh, there's even more going on there. So I've, I've always been in the Nazarene church. I've never known anything but the Nazarene church. Um, all my memories earliest on are in the Nazarene church. And so, um, you know, the old joke uh, for me runs true as well. I was born in the front, you know, pew of our church. So, Well, in light of that, tell us about your call. Like, how did you begin your ministry journey? So I, I grew up in a pastor's home, as I mentioned, and uh, didn't have a lot of interest in being a pastor when I was a kid. I knew some other friends who kind of always knew they wanted to be a pastor. For me, I think I started to uh, have some early rumblings of interest early in my high school life through some of the more spiritually impactful uh, experiences I had, you know, camp meeting, youth group retreats. But when I was a sophomore, uh, I'm from Missouri, I'm from St. Louis, and so we had a district camp meeting, and that camp meeting had uh, like a teen choir and that teen choir would, uh, you know, they would meet and they would practice twice a day uh, during the week. And then on Friday, they would have their own little special uh, choir night where they would have communion and they would have this like led by the adults in the group time of communion, the Eucharist together. And it was always really the most like meaningful. It was the pinnacle of the week. And my sophomore year, I was actually supposed to go on this mission trip to Waco, Texas. It was like a, um, it was immersion into the city. And I was supposed to go. I was only intending to go for the first half of family camp. And then I was going to uh, go with someone else down to Waco with our youth group when we were going to do that. But what happened is I got the stomach flu on Wednesday and it was terrible. It was just one of the most miserable experiences of my life. Uh, but by Friday, I was better. It was all good. And I decided to attend the communion service with, with the rest of the teens. And I went 
to it. And I remember being there and I remember uh, the act of the breaking of the bread and, and the taking of the cup. And I remember somewhere along the way, uh, I began to just have this feeling and it, it, you know, it's not just, it's not a voice. It wasn't anything specific. It was just this, this knowing, I guess, that I was supposed to be a pastor. And I wrestled with it for a minute because, you know, growing up in a pastor's home, you just know what all is involved. I mean, to a, a minimum, minimal degree, probably, but you still see all the work that's involved. And I, I remember thinking, okay, is this something I really want to do? And I, I thought about it and I, I went and I accepted the call. And uh, I remember going back and at that point it was late and I went and I woke up my parents and I told them that I wanted to be a pastor. And it was just this really, still to this day, I remember it's just this very special moment of telling my father, who never once, by the way, ever implied that I should be a pastor. It was, it was just kind of something that he felt called to but never pressured me to do. But there was this moment of me telling my father, I feel called to ministry. And it was this really special, special moment. So carrying on, that was my sophomore year. Uh, junior year, senior year passes on. And I went to this, uh, it was a college retreat the summer before I went to college. And it was uh, pretty standard stuff, I guess. Uh, and it was worship and it was you know, recreation and it was some um, preaching, teaching time. And I, during that time, I felt like this call was beginning to take shape a little bit more. And this began to look more and more like missions. And so I ended up um, wrestling with it during this week. And I, I just felt this deep call that I was supposed to become a missionary. And so that one was a little bit less of a wrestling match for me. I was like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm in for ministry, whatever that looks like. I think I'm, I'm good to go with that. And so I ended up declaring um, missions as my major at the college I attended, which was Mid-America Nazarene University, uh, and thus began my college career. And so, you know, I went through my four years at Mid-America. I got out of college, uh, was serving. I, I did a short uh, ministry spurt, a ministry assignment at a church in St. Louis, then ended up coming back to Kansas City, where I ended up getting engaged and marrying my wife, Elizabeth, and then together we went to South Korea, where we taught English at Korea Nazarene University Hagwon. And we taught kids from kindergarten through, I would say, the age of... 13 maybe okay. and so we we did that for about a year and a half close to two years my wife and I ended up getting pregnant we had our child in Korea and we realized okay I think this is probably time for us to to move closer to our families so our children you know, grows up around them so we ended up transitioning from Korea took a job as a staff pastor at a church in St. Louis a different church from the previous one at a different church in St. Louis we were pastors of missional communities. We were there for a year. Um, the pastor that I, I joined, the lead pastor, ended up transitioning on to a different church. And we kind of saw the writing on the wall. The, the job that we were brought in to do may or may not have been on the radar of the next pastor that was coming in. And so we started dispersing our resumes around, just trying to see what was out there. And we had a few different options available to us. 
And my wife, uh, who's also ordained and um, a ministry partner with me, we, we prayed about you know, the options that were available and the option that, I mean, that just jumped out at us and we just knew it was the right one for us was the job that we currently have, the assignment we currently have, which is in Napa, California. And so we have been there coming up on four years in January. We love it. They're uh, beautiful people. They treat our kids. We had Henry, our, our, our sons. We have Ella, the daughter born in Korea. We have Henry, who was born in Napa. He's the child of our church. It's a fun thing to watch. Uh, watch a baby you bring home from the hospital be held by all the ladies in the church and then you know watch him grow up in the nursery and you know develop his personality and so we've had this really special dare I say sacred opportunity to watch our children grow in love in the, in the church we currently serve it's awesome man it's fun to see, see the smile on your face as you talk about <laughs> Napa tell us a little bit more about the body of Christ at your church uh, there in Napa yeah, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful little church for about 45 people. And one of the things I was struck by at the very beginning was just the love and affection and the deep sense of community uh, present in this church. And in these three and a half, four years that we've been there, we've walked through some really heavy things together. We've experienced the death of one of the most you know, the central community members in our church. We watched her battle and eventually pass. Uh, away due to cancer and we've watched families leave due to various reasons and we've had people come and it's it's been this this community of of travelers you know people moving on to college people coming in with new kids and one of the things has remained the same and it's one of the things I I don't know how you could even begin to put a, a value on it but I adore it and it's this deep sense of desire to be together even in the midst of disagreement and so it's manifested itself in our church in that you know i mean we're in election season and so there are quite a few people in our church who are pro-trump there's quite a few people in our church who are pro-hillary clinton there's a lot of people in the church who don't like either candidate and may not vote may vote third party but whether we're talking about politics, presidential politics, or we're talking about uh, race or whatever the issue is, they've come to an equilibrium where they recognize the process in the conversation is more important than finding unity in a particular ideology. So they're willing to work together and, and find common ground in other areas of Christian life. And then in that, they're able to disagree in some of these in really what I believe to be healthy ways that I am often found myself standing in just awe of the way that they operate in these, you know, you, know, you see people throwing death threats at other people and I watch them take the Eucharist, uh, just these people who disagree with each other in some of these ways they follow each other up and take the bread and the cup and they have found a deep meaning that transcends the dualistic thinking of our of our culture of the day that's great michael it sounds to me a lot like a presence that i think you've displayed online um one of the jokes i have about you is that when you go to a conference your name tag shouldn't say michael palmer napa california you should say 
Michael Palmer, Facebook. <laughs> so people, when they see you, they can say, oh yeah, oh, I know you from Facebook. But one of the things that you've done is I think you've tried to create safe spaces for conversation and safe spaces, hopefully, for people to disagree Christianly together. So it sounds like at your congregation, you're very willing to sort of approach those subjects, whether it's the preaching moment or small groups. How do you do that in your congregation? And then second part of that question will be, why and how are you willing to approach those conversations online as well? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, You know, I think we'll take it in two parts. We'll take it in our church, and I, I bring the church up intentionally because... Um, I did this poorly, uh, actually, in our situation. So I'm very passionate about issues that deal with people who are on the margins or who are excluded from uh, being part of conversations. And so two of the ways that's manifested is uh, through the LGBTQ conversation. And it's also manifested through uh, some of the systemic racial issues of injustice and brutality and police brutality. And, and so I, I felt this burden to begin to at least, even if imperfectly, speak some of this online. And I used my personal Facebook page to do it. But one of the things that happened quickly is, you know, I would say some of this stuff on social media and probably a month or two into it, a couple of the members kindly and lovingly just came up to me and said they were just really confused by some of the things I was posting. Yeah. And I realized, oh man, I I got this backwards, I think. And so what followed was probably two or three, multiple two or three hour long conversations. So two or three meetings of two hours or three hours of conversation dealing with sexuality, dealing with race and that's where, uh, I mentioned it just a minute ago, that's where a lot of this, we care more about getting there together than we care about arriving in the same place. That's awesome. And it was totally, um, I, I almost said by accident, but I don't think that's true. It was total leading of the spirit. It was something that we discovered together as a family. And so after we had some of these conversations, they all centered around, you know, started around the time of uh, the Ferguson riots because uh, that's a town that I grew up in, went to school in. So it started around the Ferguson riots, and it, it kind of reached its pinnacle um, during the Supreme Court decision on marriage. And that's when the conversations in our church began to take place. And so as we emerged from that, the congregation and I came to a pretty uh, comfortable place together of understanding each other and allowing each other the space to uh, come to some, some various forms of disagreement. Well, I began to feel like I should speak more openly about this. And I began to feel like part of that call was to try to find a way, even if it's imperfect, to do what we just did as a church. It's great. And to do it through social media, which is like the biggest trap in the world. (laughs) (laughs) And so one of the, the guiding principles that I try to live by, and it was actually done by your lead pastor, John Middendorf. Um, I was talking to him just about handling difficult conversations, and he just, uh, I'm not going to be able to speak this verbatim, but he said that, that you know, people will, will either agree with you or disagree with you, often in the extremes of both. You know, they'll really disagree with you, or they'll, re- you know, they'll really agree with you. 
And it's really easy to get sucked up in um, the, the, the arguments back and forth. But he really encouraged me, and it was really wise uh, instruction, to seek hospitality among all. Because uh, when you can find a way to invite people who disagree with you to speak their heart, to share their stories, even if you disagree with it, it creates space for other people to speak their story and share their hearts. And what I'm beginning to realize is that people want to talk about these issues, but oftentimes don't feel safe to do it. And so that's that's been one of my driving hopes, I think, in, in engaging social media the way I do, is that one, we're, we're naming and lamenting um, as, a, as a white, a uh, straight pastor, I am a man who is in a place of privilege. Yeah. I have things given to me that aren't deserved because of merit or because of, of right, but it's just because of the way I was born. And so part of what I believe my job is um, as a pastor, along with leading my congregation, is to try to find ways to name that privilege be it in racial conversations or sexuality conversations, and try to name the ways that that impacts my life with other people. And I've done that imperfectly, as we all do, and, and find ways to apologize and reconcile and listen and hear. Hearing is so important. We like to talk before we like to hear. So trying to learn to hear and uh, invite people into that hearing and sharing as well. So to me, you've been both willing and courageous to be able to talk about some of these controversial topics as an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene. That has brought criticism upon you, I'm sure. How, how do you handle that criticism? Yeah, it, it definitely has. One of the things that happened really early on, so I wasn't very active in my early life on Facebook. Um, I did the typical sporadic and very inconsequential mundane I guess is probably a better way to say it the very mundane posts about sports or you know movies or whatever and so one of the when I started to actually post some of the stuff that I felt called to post and things I really truly believed in you get the initial wave of like significant backlash and there was a lot of it a lot of a lot of people would personally would, would, would personal message me direct message me and say some really strong comments. My dad being a pastor in the Nazarene Church, you know, some people said that my dad has got to be ashamed of me. Um, to his credit, my dad has always come back in some of those comments and said, "No, no, I'm I'm really proud of him." So that was nice, That's great papa son moment. Um, but you know, they 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 come in with these comments that that can very easily make you question what it is you're doing because I think some people like the fight but I'm not really one of them I, I I don't particularly enjoy the criticism or the backlash and one of the things I think I'm 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 learning it's an ongoing process without a doubt one of the things I think I'm learning is that it's an identity issue for for me as a pastor there's so many ways we're taught to view ourselves as successful and 
one of the metrics pastors judge their success is by the ways that people receive them. Yeah. Uh, we do this in our local congregations. You know, if somebody likes the sermon you preach, well, you're a really good pastor that Sunday. But then if you preach a sermon somebody dislikes, you're like, well, I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty worthless pastor. Uh, and, and it's really easy to find yourself, it's like an ocean, you know, the waves rock you back and forth. And depending on the Sunday and depending on the Facebook post in this case, I began to feel my worth was tied to the success or not of whatever given post. And, it, and it's not even, I think, if we're going to speak really candidly here, it's not even just the, the negative feedback, but you can begin to really tie your worth on people's positive comments. You know, people want to be encouraging and kind, and it's really easy to tie yourself to that. And so one of the things that I'm really learning through um, some of the, the conversations I'm having with other people in my life, um, some significant figures in my life, is to really do the um, interior work of dealing with um, my shadow or my ego or this, this, um, this need to be affirmed, yeah. not as a son of God, but as Michael the pastor or Michael the husband or Michael the dad or Michael the Facebook person, like whatever the thing is, um, I call them my shadow metrics. They're the things I can't quite put my finger on, but they're the things I feel like define me also. So it's this constant journey of, of remaining faithful to what I feel like I am called to do, but to always find myself grounded or anchored not in how something succeeds or fails but in just my core identity as Christ's son who or or God our father's son who is deeply pleased in me ah thanks Michael one thing I think that's developed in our friendship recently was some of the ways in which you've been open to talk about vulnerability and shame online um, in light of that, one of the posts that I feel like went more viral within the Church of the Nazarene circles was one on depression. That's really, I think, when our friendship developed because I was like, I want to know that guy who's willing to come out on Facebook and say, I deal with depression and anxiety on the pod with a little bit, you know, audience so you can hear your voice, so you can hear your inflection. Would you be willing to talk a little bit about that and, and that journey in your life? Yeah, that's a really difficult one, but an important one because it's not one that I think we are very, or that maybe we don't feel very free to talk about them. So my journey with this started, noticeably started, it probably had um, gone back even farther than that, but I may not have been aware of what was happening. But I began to notice um, this uh, anxiety specifically with some depression. I noticed it beginning in about uh, 2014, about two years ago. And it would come and go, you know, just depending on the circumstances. I described it to some people. It's like, um, it's like a buzz in my chest that it's like a, <laughs> it's like a, a feeling of impending doom. Like I feel like the world's going to collapse around me. I don't, I don't know how to fully describe it. Well, I, I didn't, as often happens, I just kind of ignored it and just felt like, well, it's just a season, it'll go away, and it never really did. And it began to increase in intensity, uh, becoming more and more 
uh, debilitating. And eventually, I found myself, this was uh, this year, I'm, now I'm, I'm spacing, it was early this year, maybe spring, early summer. I found myself one day, I mean, I was literally on the floor in the fetal position. And I, I like, I picked, this is the background, you won't get this if you uh, end up reading the essay I wrote, but like, I, like, I, I scooped myself up off the floor and I like, I, I live about a hundred yards, the parsonage that our church has, it lives about a hundred yards away. So I like scooped myself up off the floor and I, I dragged myself to our house and I like walked in the door and I just, my kids are, are were home at that time. My wife was there and they were like, daddy. And I just kind of like in my fog, I just kind of like walked to my bedroom and I collapsed and I just like wept. Mm. I, I haven't like, I haven't wept that, that deeply. I can't tell you in how long it just, it was painful and it was, it was suffocating and it was hopeless. And so I had been meeting uh, with a spiritual director and I, my wife, you know, was there and she was um, comforting me and she was affirming me and she was just asking, what can I do? And she's always been very, um, very much by my side during this. And I, I just had this feeling I needed to go talk to um, my spiritual director, Father Tom. And so we laid there for a little bit. I, I finally felt like I was at a place of equilibrium and I, I went and I, I talked to him and, and we, we had a great conversation. And one of the things that emerged from the conversations we had a little bit prior to that, that time and some of the times after was this image of Psalm 23 is that we as people want God to be with us or we expect God or maybe we most expect God to be with us in the good times when life is happy and the sun is bright and shiny and it's a Southern California blue sky. We think those are the times God is with us, but Father Tom began to help me understand that there's this pattern in the book of Psalms of two parts of, of life, of green pastures and, and rivers and joy and happiness. And then there's also this other half of life of, of valleys of the shadow of death and you know being surrounded by your enemies in, in this very dark world. And he said, you know, the, the thing about this psalm is, is that God is with you in the, in the sunshine, in the, in the good moments, and he's with you in, in the painful ones too. And so I, I kind of attached myself <laughs> to that passage and began to work it out in my own mind. And, and one of the parts of this story, it was that I, I couldn't even um, get myself to prepare the sermon for that Sunday. And so I have a, a lady in our church um, her name is also Elizabeth, like my wife. Uh, she's an ordained elder also, like my wife. So it's, it gets confusing from time to time <laughs> in our church. But this this lady in my church, she is um, fantastic, always supportive of us. And, and she was willing to, on a Friday night at like 10, was when I was having this whole thing, this whole meltdown. I called her half in tears, trying to be the stoic pastor I feel like I should be. 
which is a total lie, by the way. But I felt like I should be still, I call her and I'm like, I, I just, I can't really explain what's going on, but I need help with Sunday. And she so gratefully preached for me that Sunday. So I knew um, that this was an important time in the life of our congregation because up until this point, we had been having all these conversations about honesty and the process and the journey of issues like race and sexuality and, and, and politics. And, and I realized in all of these conversations, I had been asking my, my congregation, the people in the congregation to be open and honest and transparent and vulnerable about their life. And I realized that if I stuffed this down, then I may be hypocrites too strong of a word, but it's a lot like that. Um, I'm unwilling to do the hard work that I'm asking my congregation to do. So maybe hypocrite works. So I realized, okay, I don't, I don't know exactly how I need to work this out, but I need to share with my congregation. So that week I went to Psalm 23 and I worked out this narrative. Uh, In many ways it was autobiographical of how I felt like God was journeying this with me and I used it with the backdrop of Psalm 23 and I shared it at our church and it was it was maybe the most powerful moment of just God showing up and hmm. in, in our time at Living Vine and it resonated uh, I guess I guess the fact that it resonated shouldn't surprise me because I had, I had been listening to a lot of Richard Rohr around the same time, and he talks about how he defines it the shadow. He said, or our shadow self. He talks about how God's grace that we experience the grace of God most viscerally in our deepest and darkest wounds, yeah. and that we are taught by the church to hide those things, which is the 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 most self destructive unhealthy biggest lie possible that that god doesn't want us to pretend like this stuff doesn't exist but he wants us to open ourselves to him to to allow his grace to to meet us in our deepest and darkest wounds so it was this amazing moment there is several significant conversations that followed and i just I went home exhausted. I went straight to sleep. I slept like all afternoon. Yeah. Monday I wake up and I just, I just know I, I can't let this stop here. Um, if I'm a 30 year old pastor who is suffering from anxiety and depression, I can't be the only pastor. Yeah. And so I felt really strongly that I just needed to put them down, those words down. And I did, I put it on my blog and I just kind of put it out there. And it, I was, I was floored by the reaction, both, well, it was, it was extremely positive in terms of encouragement, but I was, I was also floored by the stories of people who had experienced what I, I would call dangerous is a kind way of saying it, of pastors telling people that it was doubting God it was doubting the the sovereignty or the faithfulness of God or the ability of God to take medicine when you are feeling anxiety and doubt uh, and I, I heard story after story of that uh, stories of parents whose kids were 
deeply anxious or dealing with depression um, but pastors making them feel like they were being disobedient to yeah. God just story after story of, of people who were trying to care for themselves and in their attempts to care for themselves felt like they were betraying their Heavenly Father and so we had, I had so many beautiful conversations that came out of that and then along with those conversations were just story after story after story of pastors who suffered some silently i had many pastors who had done this and they'd walked this journey and had been open about their journey and they offered encouragement to me it was it was a holy moment for me to to realize that the suffering um, and I, I use that full well of, of that suffering isn't even comparable to the suffering of others, but this, these moments of darkness in my life were shared and others were experiencing the same thing. And there's this deep knowing, this deep community, I think, in understanding you aren't the only one walking that journey yeah. through life. Yeah. If there's a young clergy person out there listening to this, or really anyone, hmm. um, I'm sure Britt will link to the blog post also. You can go listen to that podcast or that sermon. Um, Britt can post to that too, I believe it's called Setting the Table. Uh, in the Valley of Death. In the yeah. Valley of Death, yeah. Um, Britt will link to those. But if, if someone's listening to this and they're thinking, I have that buzz, or I experience anxiety and depression and haven't talked about it with anybody, what sort of steps would you recommend that person out there listening to say, how can I move forward? Yeah, and everybody's different. And that's one of the things I'm, you know, I mean, you know that cognitively, but after I'm hearing all these stories, everybody's feeling is different. So mine feels like a buzz, but other people, I mean, they might describe it a different way, but there's a knowing yeah. when you've got it. And always, always um, the first move is doctor. Go see a doctor. Go go talk to a medical professional. There is no shame in that at all. To go and to say, hey, this is what I'm experiencing. This is what I'm feeling. What do you think? Um, sometimes it's a simple chemical imbalance that a medication can fix. But sometimes we carry wounds from, from abuse or from uh, just baggage we carry from fractured relationships or... Um, situations in life that left us bleeding and we just didn't deal with it we just kind of packed it down and that manifests in all sorts of unhealthy ways and so uh, seeing a counselor I mean that's that's not shameful that's brave and realizing that realizing there's 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 great bravery in going and asking for help so um, the two things one medical care two seeking out um, a therapist or, or a counselor, somebody licensed to deal with some of these strong and difficult yeah. issues. But three is find a community. Find people who, who share in the same struggles you do and, and be real about it. Because there's something about naming your experience, the pain that you're in. It, it doesn't necessarily make it go away. But at least in, in my case, and I feel like this is true of some of the others I've talked to, the act of naming the darkness removes some of its power. Sure. Community creates healing. Community creates empathy. 
and to speak the grace of God on somebody else, um, while I know it's not a sacrament, it has much of a sacramental feeling to it, uh, a deep invitation into the body and the, the blood and the, the, the brokenness of Christ. And so uh, don't be afraid to reach out. And you, I mean, I'm, I'm super easy to find on social media. If you aren't sure what that even looks like for you, reach out to me. I will, you know, I, I'm always willing to have those conversations with whoever would like to do so. It's awesome. Thanks. Thanks for that offering of assistance as well. It's awesome. Thanks. Yeah. I really appreciate it, Michael. One of the things you mentioned was your spiritual director and Father Tom in the midst of all of that. And it's a passion of mine. And, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how you found a spiritual director, what is a spiritual director, and your relationship with Father Tom. Yeah, Father Tom was uh, a provincial relationship brought into my life at a very important moment. I, I, met, I met him through another actual mentor of mine uh, by the name of Sean in the, the Bay Area where I, I do ministry. And Sean had been meeting with Father Tom for like 15 years and we had had some conversations about some of the stuff I was working through and then I said, I, I, I don't know much about spiritual directors. We don't talk about that much in the Nazarene Church. But I, I feel like I've read enough Henry Nouwen that I've think there's something that I'd like to explore there. And he said, well, I, I, I've met with this guy for a very long time and I think you would be a good fit. So he introduced me to him, gave me his number, I guess. And I, I called him and reached out and we began to meet. And he's, he's a really amazing mix. He's a, an Episcopalian slash Eastern Orthodox uh, clergy. I don't even know at that point what you would give him as his official title. He's a spiritual director. And Right off the bat, we just began to have so many amazing conversations about faith, about life, about what was going on inside of me, what was going on inside of my head, talking about prayer and talking about the interior life in general. And a lot of that is centered around who we are as people and, and the wounds that we carry. So the job of a spiritual director is to help you discern the voice of God. And so you, you talk about what you're experiencing in your spiritual life and they are just a, a person who walks alongside this journey of faith with you to help you distinguish the voice of God from the other voices in your life. And I found that he has helped me begin to understand a more healthy uh, means of prayer. Uh, he's helped me to if anybody knows me, you know, my, my congregation, I think it's lovingly, but they call me Twitch because I'm always moving. Like as you can't see, but I'm like podcasting right now with my foot is just going crazy. It's what I do. I move. I'm always moving. And so silence and, and reflection, it's just, I thought it was an impossibility for me, but he's, he's helping me along the journey into repetitive, um, a, a daily entering into uh, contemplation where you where you quiet your mind and and you 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 think on the word and you listen for the heart of God and so I'm, I'm relatively new in this in a, about a year but even in this year I'm, I'm beginning to realize, and this is certainly not exclusive of Nazarene, 
um, theology. I mean, this is true of every denomination and theology in the world. But we have our, our experience and we have the theology that we were given to us for good and for ill. And you find yourself with many blind spots that you don't even know exist. And those manifest themselves in ways that you aren't even aware that they're manifesting themselves. And so I like to think of it as a Venn diagram. You got these two circles that, and you know, they overlap. And Father Tom has helped me begin to locate some of those blind spots. Uh, one of those being prayer. I don't, this is great. This is my confessional podcast, so that's fun. <laughs> uh, one of those, I was kind of verbally processing, which is what I do and it always gets me in trouble. I'm sitting there in, in Father Tom's office and I'm, I'm verbally processing about prayer. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm talking about prayer, 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 prayer. And it just kind of came out. I don't really like to pray. <laughs> Pastor of a church. Um, this is around the same time that all this stuff with anxiety starting to like ramp up. And I'm like, you know, I just don't love to pray. I don't enjoy it. I feel guilty about when I don't. And I'm in there and I'm, I'm, I'm praying and I'm guilty about what I'm not doing with work. And then I'm finally in my place of prayer and I'm thinking about all the stuff I need to do. And then I'm guilty that I'm not silent. And it also seems to be coming so easy to friends on social media because there's bad parts of social media too. <laughs> the Instagram effect where you, you see the perfect life of your friends and don't see their warts. And so, you know, I'm, I was just kind of confessing that to him and saying, you know, I don't really know how to approach all of this. And so he helped me begin to process that in a healthy way, helping me understand the way prayer has been viewed over the course of a thousand years or 2000 years and that we don't um, have individualistic prayer lives, but we're entering into the prayer life of Christ. He talks about it like you wade into a river and you just kind of get swept away in in the movement of the spirit um and what what he has for you and so that is i am i am so early on in that journey but there's hope there i think if i'm i'm being honest and there's been some deeply meaningful moments with me and my heavenly father where in a in a, in a random act of silence where I actually find myself still and the Heavenly Father meets me there. It's just, it's just these beautiful little moments that remind me of the Father's love for me. It's awesome. Thanks, Michael. You mentioned the word hope. And Britt usually ends her podcasts, you know, with a couple of questions. And one of them is, what gives you hope for the future of the Church of the Nazarene? There was a time, um, I won't get into the story, but there was a time when I thought about Maybe the Nazarene Church isn't the right church for me. Um, it was around college, and I was wrestling with sanctification, as I, I know a lot of people do. And I remember thinking, maybe there's a better place. You know, the grass is greener argument. And I, I ended up staying um, for, for various numbers of reasons. And I'm, I'm so glad I did, because there's an optimism in our theology. Yeah. When, when you live in redemptive holiness when you live in in this understanding of of God goes to you you know provenient grace he's working in your life before you even realize that he's working in your life uh, 
that's uh, that's a God, a God that's loving and and kind and forgiving and merciful and whose goal in life is to heal us. Our our theology has space for all of that. And as somebody who has anxiety and depression, um, that's a God I want to serve. And that's a God that has revealed himself in a very um, healing and meaningful way. And even though I'm just now realizing it, it's becoming more and more evident to me that the Nazarene Church has hope as our theology. We are a theology of hope that, that the world that we have in front of us, that the church that we are experiencing now, that the pain that we have is not the pain that will always be. And that the God that we are worshiping is walking through all of that with us in the midst of the pain and, and all of that. And so I think the Nazarene Church in a world that's divided and filled with pain and anguish, I, I have hope in our church because we hold a theology of healing, yeah. of, of reconciliation, of peace. And that's something that I can, I can get behind. I have a good friend of mine. Um, we're both pastors' kids, and I became a pastor, and he became... I think he, he'd, uh, he'd probably identify himself somewhere between agnostic and somewhere between agnostic and atheist, probably more towards agnostic. Um, but we would have these conversations. And one night he asked me, why do you even, like, how do you end up here as a pastor? Why, why do you want to, to be a part of this? And I, I didn't really have a good answer for him, but the one that I gave him, and I, I, I think I still resonate with it the most is that the church does some really terrible things. It's broken in a lot of ways. But even in the midst of the pain and the the woundingness of the church, the way that the church wounds, when it's working right, when the church is being the church, there is nothing more beautiful in the world. That's awesome. Thanks, Michael. That was really beautiful. I'm really grateful, and I know that the I think the audience is going to be really grateful for the opportunity for you to open up, share, be vulnerable, be honest with us. And uh, if someone wants to get a hold of you, um, I know you've got your blog address is michaelrpalmer.com. Yeah. Yep. And uh, they can reach you by email there. Yeah, there's a there's a drop down. You can you can contact me through that. Um, if you want, you can also direct email me at m ryan r y a n palmer. 85 at gmail.com. It's really long. It's a great email address, man. It's super long, but we'll have, we'll, we'll link. I guess you can link to it, right? Yeah, we'll link to it. And want. then if someone doesn't want to find the links, um, your podcast is if you want to just on iTunes, Google search Living Vine Church. Yes. And uh, the pod we talked about is on April 5th. Uh, thanks, man. It's been awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. I had a great time.